Another pot of coffee is brewing. My fifth cup is almost finished. And I really should start drinking more water, but I like the caffeine hit just a bit too much. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and a very honest caffeine fiend. Again, I feel the need to apologise for the seagulls. It seems the closer we get to something resembling UK warm weather, the noisier the birds get, especially when you live on the coast like I do. I'm actually ahead of the game this week and feeling positive about it. Though, admittedly, I'm still debating the next film I'm going to talk about, the last in this year's Chris Evans season. I'm not actually planning on this being a one-off event, at least not right now. Huge congratulations have to go to It's a Musical podcast over on Twitter, who somehow managed to guess the film from the single set of ambiguous clues that I posted on Saturday. Not sure how they guessed it. Sorry that I didn't pick your all-time favourite film, but as this is a Chris Evans season, I couldn't do a film in which he has such a small role. So maybe at some point I will look into doing Scott Pilgrim. This week, I am going to be talking about 2010's The Losers, which was the last film released before Evans appeared on the big screen in what has proved to be his best-known role, Captain America. Also this week, I'm going to be talking about the book that apparently inspired 2005's The Wedding Date. This is a book called Asking for Trouble by Elizabeth Young, and it's chiclet released in 2001. Of course, it wouldn't be a week in the coffee household if I didn't talk about what's been happening with my mental health and how I've been coping with things in general. In a change to the usual programming, however, rather than talking about all the shows and films that are going to be arriving on UK streaming services this week, I'm actually going to talk about what I plan on watching, what I'm looking forward to, and perhaps a few hints about next week's film, but I'm not promising anything. But before all that, there's actually a brand new instalment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. And for this, I have to thank my new dream journal. Because the minute I started telling myself, you can write these down if you want to, I started having them again. Though, not the other night, and I will go into that a bit later. So, I was at a concert as myself, feeling self-conscious about what I was wearing. Which is pretty much an everyday occurrence for me. Every time the performer saw me, he would smile and blow me a kiss, something that no one else was getting. So clearly there is something there between us, though I don't recognise his face, and to be honest, now I can't even recall it. I'm still feeling uncomfortable when the person sitting next to me, who looks somewhat familiar but I'm not sure why, hands me his jacket and tells me that he knows all about me and the man on stage really cares for me. At some point after this concert, as I said, time is irrelevant in dreams and this seems to flow one scene to the next very, very smoothly. Oh, I wish I could transition my audio this well. I'm at home and I apparently live in a beautiful cottage style building that has been modernised, but not in a way that makes it obvious we wanted a different style of property. It's not just mine, though. I share it with the man who was singing and our third. Yeah. I have a third, apparently. I've been reading way too much fanfic. 
Over a breakfast of orange juice and coffee, see, coffee is everywhere, he asks me if I had a nice conversation with the person I was sitting next to. It turns out the guy that I was sitting next to was Kurt Russell. Yeah, okay. And the reason I didn't recognise him is because it wasn't him as he is today, a la uh, Christmas Chronicles. It was him as he was in his youth. After breakfast, we all head up to our shared bedroom for fun. The room is grand with a massive bed and a corner filled with shelves that have nothing but Funko Pops on them. A lot of fun is definitely had, and by that I mean a lot of fun. But I'm not going to go into that because this is not quite a PG-rated podcast, but it's not adult either. We then go out to lunch with a couple of friends for Chinese food. And we're sitting at the table, and for some reason, after discussion about the food... I confide that I'm allergic to sesame. I'm not really. The other woman then leans forward, laughing, and tells me she's got an allergy to peanuts. So it's rather odd that our loving partners have chosen Chinese as the lunch of choice. After the meal, we invite the couple back to our home and give them a tour of the place, including a very grand bathroom, where there is a long, wide bathtub big enough easily for three fully grown adults. It has jets and is cased in glittery marble. The floor has a TV in it that is constantly playing sea on sand in a vibrant blue. But the weirdest thing is that for all the beautiful things on one side of the bathroom, the sink and two toilets are 1970s pink. I have no idea what was going on here. It's at this point that another guest joins us, telling me that he wanted to join the tour. I can't believe it. For some reason, Stephen Fry appears in my dream. The tour continues and I show the guests my study, which is another room full of all the geek that one woman could ever want. There is a small balcony leading off the door and a light wood desk is in the middle, surrounded by ceiling height bookshelves that are absolutely packed to the brim with books and Funko Pops here, there and everywhere. The tour over, I take the guests downstairs where we all have coffee and talk until it's late. The next morning I wake up the comfy filling in a very cosy sandwich and that's it that was the dream as i said a bit random but hey you can't actually tell your dreams where to go i wish i could so now we've got on to the film as i said earlier i'm looking at the film the losers which was released in april 2010 and based on a series of comics from vertigo To be honest, you can tell very little about the film from the poster. It's just a group of people with guns. The film is directed by Sylvain White, who is probably better known for directing 2018's Slender Man and Stomp the Yard from 2006. It had a budget of $25 and despite an impressive cast, made only $29.9 at the box office. As for ratings on sites like Rotten Tomatoes, well, there it earned a rather average 49% from the critics and 54% from audience reviews. As I said in one of my clues, this does star a few MCU actors, including Evans. The lead cast is made up of Jeffrey Dean Morgan, yep, Walking Dead's Negan, who plays Clay, the leader of the group. Idris Elba is Roke. Chris Evans is Jensen. Oscar Yaneda is Cougar. And Columbus Short stars as Pooch. We also have Zoe Saldana as Aisha. Even the film credits play on the fact that this was based on a comic book series. As we open, 
It's a zoomed-in American flag, and we can hear Chris Evans saying, I'll do anything, but I can't betray my country. So it's fair to assume that we're hearing a confession of some kind. And then we zoom out, and we can see a silhouette of a pair of dinosaur figures. Evans' character, Jensen, is playing a game with two action figures. And it's not a PG-rated game. I love the fact that we're given this kind of insight into the character, and we get insight into the others in a very, very similar way. Jensen is a bit of a child. He's very good at his job and takes things seriously when he has to. But there's always a little bit of childish wonder in him, and we see his jokey side several times at points through the film. We all know that Evans has tattoos. In fact, he has the sign of Taurus on one of his arms and some words on his chest. And they are beautiful tattoos. In this film, unlike a lot of the others that we've seen, they aren't covered up by makeup. His character and the others are dressed suitably for Bolivia, where they are currently on a mission. Dog tags, nerdy glasses and a sleeveless top. And he also has a bit of scruff. Okay, enough of the drooling. My microphone does not like moisture. The group are all playing cards when we, the viewers, get an idea of each of their characters and their roles within the team. Jensen is in charge of tech and communications. Cougar is long-range elimination, so he's a sniper. Pooch is transportation and heavy weapons. And Roke is demolitions and tactical. Instead of betting with money while they're playing this game, they are using their weapons. And wow, Roke has some serious, serious knife issues. Clay, played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, is the operational control, the colonel, their leader, the one in charge of organising their missions and ensuring they're carried out correctly. Their mission in Bolivia is to sort out a drug lord, Vadil. What they don't realise is this isn't exactly what the mission is for. They see a truck full of children at Fadil's compound and they call an abort on the mission. They cannot, in all conscience, kill innocent children. Unfortunately, their mission has been taken over by someone called Max. And if you're anything like me, you may well recognise his voice, especially when he says his name, if you have a thing for a certain 80s film. Unfortunately, the payload, no matter what they do, is going to be delivered. The group know that they have to go in and rescue the kids. And this is when things go tits up big time. One of the children tells Clay that her brother is upstairs with Fadil, and Clay goes to get him. While the children are being loaded onto an appropriately placed yellow school bus, does anyone else wonder how that actually managed to get into Bolivia? Because I do. Fadil and Clay have a confrontation, and Fadil mentions that Max must have sent him. All the while, he's holding the little girl's brother hostage in front of him with a knife to his throat. Who the heck is this Max? Fadil tells Clay that while Max sent his group after him, Max will then kill Clay and his friends too. He doesn't like loose ends. He then picks up a gun and from the distance you hear two shots. The group all manage to get the kids to the exfil where they are supposed to be meeting a helicopter and getting the heck out of Dodge. Unfortunately, though they escape the missile blast, as the five soldiers watch, the helicopter takes off and is hit by another missile. All the children are killed instantly at Max's instruction. Realising that they're never going to be safe and seeing evidence on the news of protests occurring because of this action in Bolivia that was apparently unsanctioned, though it wasn't, the men fake their deaths. They have been treated as though they are traitors. 
Four months later, the five are working in whatever they can in Bolivia as they have nothing, no money and no way of getting home. But even if they did, they would be hunted down and destroyed. Clay and Roke are at an underground cockfight when Clay spots a woman across the ring. She's barely paying any attention to the fight and he's definitely interested. But Clay is still trying to find out about Max, the man who essentially destroyed their mission, forced them into hiding and killed all those children. Roke tells him that they just need to stay focused and stay where they are. He is very angry and just wants to get a clean passport and get home without being noticed. Alone, Clay heads to a bar and proceeds to get very drunk. And it's then that the girl from the cockfight approaches him. They head back to his room and... Even as she's in the bathroom getting herself ready and he is loosening himself up in the bedroom, they are unconsciously mirroring each other, bending and stretching. She then tells him that she has a business proposition for him before pulling a gun. Thus begins a very physical fight between the two. You'd think that Clay would have the upper hand, but Aisha, played by Zoe Saldana, holds her own incredibly well. And all the time they're fighting... The room is slowly burning to a cinder around them. Neither is winning when Aisha tells him that she can help him find Max. She can help get them back to the US, but, and here she is very, very honest, it is a suicide mission. Pooch, Roke and Clay are waiting for Aisha at the meat site, which just happens to be in the middle of a cemetery, when Cougar and Jensen arrive on the back of scooters. Apparently they were at a party the night before, they both work in a doll factory. And Jensen, when he arrives, is wearing a very fetching pink shirt that is promoting his niece's soccer team. Apart from the dark green atrocity that Chris Evans was wearing at the end of The Perfect Score, I don't think I've actually seen him wearing much that hasn't looked good. That green, that just did nothing for him. His friends make comments about the shirt, unable to believe that he would wear anything so pink and girly. It has a great big flower on the front with Go Petunias written across it. Jensen is so endearing and so clearly supportive of his family, even though they believe him to be dead and he can't do anything to change that belief. It turns out that everyone, including the CIA, wants Aisha dead, according to research that Jensen has managed to find with their limited resources. And then they start talking about Clay and how he really doesn't have a very good track record with women. They seem to always want to kill him in some way or another, including one who even put a bomb in his car. Max, it turns out, is really protected. Aisha wants Max and she will get the losers back into the US in order to get her revenge. Pooch points out that if they do this mission, they are waging a war against the CIA, though it's never actually been established that Max is with the CIA. But as Cougar accurately points out, they started it. <laughs> Talk about a childish argument starter. You started it. We then find ourselves in Dubai. The losers aren't there. They are still in Bolivia. We see the back of someone's head and whoever it is is wearing a stunning pinstriped suit, leather gloves and his henchmen are getting rid of anyone who disagrees with his offer. We then discover that Max is actually played by Jason Patrick. See, I said that if you'd heard his voice, you'd immediately know who he was, if you had a love, like I do, for a specific 1980s film. He is being aided by his loyal assistant Wade, Travis, who is played by Holt McCallany, 
who many may recognise from his roles in shows like Mindhunter or the film Fight Club. It appears that Max has a very specific goal in mind and he's not going to rest until he gets what he wants. Aisha, meanwhile, is living up to her end of the bargain. She has found a way to get the losers back into the US and that actually involves smuggling them in in coffins. Kind of appropriate when you think about it, given that they are meant to be dead. It seems that Max has also managed to get what he wants, and apparently that is Sonic Dematerializers, or Snooks. They are very good at doing exactly what they say, as we watch an entire island full of lush plant life, and probably poor animals, vanish into nothing. These weapons, says Max, are the perfect ones for the green terrorists, There is zero environmental damage. However, he's open to selling them to anyone and everyone that has the money. As Max is telling Wade of his plans, he is being shaded from the sun by a young woman who is wearing clothing that, to be honest, is highly inappropriate for the beach. She's wearing high heels and a pencil skirt. Kind of think Sandra Bullock in The Proposal when she gets down on bended knee outside the immigration office. As a way to prove that he is a heartless and soulless creature like we needed any evidence, he asks Wade for his gun and without even looking, shoots her dead. In order to get what they need, the losers, they're not really but so far they have been, are playing the victims of a car crash. All they need is access to a helicopter. They don't kill the chopper crew, simply knock them out and then take the copter on the back of a truck. And Jensen, at this point, proves himself to be the font of all useless information, including a tidbit about cats and dogs and how cats should never be trusted. It's incredibly random, but it kind of builds upon his strange character. He also tries, at this point, to really badly chat Aisha up. Realising, though, it's a lost cause, he walks away. And to be honest, this is probably the best move Because why would you compete with A, the leader of your group, and B, someone who potentially wants to kill you? Roke is curious as to Aisha's motives, and at this point I am reminded quite well of the confrontation scene between Francesca and Anna in The Perfect Score, though there is no gun involved in that one, obviously. He holds a gun to Aisha's head and demands to know what her motives are, because he doesn't believe her. Later on, we see the group watching Max and his entourage because it appears that Max, whoever he happens to be, is very powerful, very wealthy, and has 24-hour guards and a lot of them. They watch as Max and his entourage drive away and then they pounce. Unfortunately, they recognise Wade and for all that they are good, they know that Wade is also very good, partially because he is ruthless. At this point, you are forced to ask, well, what were they after? Using the helicopter that they stole, they managed to get hold of one of the trucks, an armoured vehicle, so it must weigh an absolute ton, if not more, and they transport it somewhere to open it. When it's opened, a load of armed guards climb out, and hold guns on Clay and the rest of the group. And then Clay points out, well, are you really going to fire this? You're covered in gasoline. One spark from your gun would set you all on fire. So, of course, they've got what they want. Unfortunately, 
it's not Max. It turns out that when they took the armoured vehicle, they didn't have Max at all. What they ended up with was a small vault containing a hard drive that needs a decryption key. So now they've got to get a decryption key. Aisha, apparently, knew everything. She knew that this was what Max was transporting, and she knew that this was something that was valuable to him. But she couldn't tell the guys this because they wouldn't go for her mission. Roke, unfortunately, is one of those people who, once they get something between their teeth, they will not let go. And he is constantly questioning absolutely everything. He doesn't like the plans, and he doesn't trust Aisha. Finally, Clay has had enough and tells Roke that if he doesn't like how things are being run, he can just leave. But Roke points out, I've got nowhere to go. At this point, I had to start questioning, so what's his motive? Roke appears to be trying to turn everyone in the group against each other by making them feel elements of distrust. Wade and Max are testing the weapons in Puerto Rico and Max is furious that his drive was stolen and he needs to know what happened to it. Wade tells him that the men that Max had killed four months ago are A, not dead, and B, now set to get him instead. Meanwhile, Clay is going over their plans to get the decryption key for the hard drive when Aisha shows up, and thus starts a very destructive relationship between two people with fiery personalities. The seduction scene plays out, in my view, like something in an early 2000s music video, think pink with Jeremy Renner, maybe? I'm trying to think what the song was. I think it might have been Trouble, but that is kind of what it plays out like. She thinks the fact that Clay cares for his men is a weakness, and if it came down to things, then if he and Roke ever fought, Roke would clearly have the upper hand. Next morning, Jensen, as the tech guy, is already on his way to the HQ of Goliath Worldwide, where the encryption key code is kept. He's disguised as a badly dressed cycle courier, and in order to encourage people to avoid him, he is loudly, out of pitch, singing, Don't Stop Believing. A singer in a smoky room, smell of wine and cheap perfume. For a smile they can share the night, it goes on and on and on and on. He's clearly enjoying this entire thing so much. Once he gets into the elevator and see, this comes back to what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I was saying there's going to be no scene in an elevator in this one because it's broken. This is the second of three films where an elevator scene is a big part of Chris Evans' role. Think Captain America Winter Soldier and of course The Nanny Diaries where he and Scarlett Johansson get it on in the elevator. This is the third one or the second if you're looking at it timeline-wise. In the elevator, he starts to get undressed to change into his secondary costume or disguise. And of course, the journey in the elevator isn't without a few stops. But to be honest, I would be quite happy if an elevator door opened and gave me a glimpse of Chris Evans wearing little more than a tight t-shirt and a pair of boxers. He asks this group of women who end up seeing him, like in the angle of the dangle, just before the doors close again, and one of them is very clearly peering to see as much as she can as the doors close slowly. He manages to get into the office he needs access to by pretending to be tech support. Unfortunately, even though he's only in there for a few moments, long enough to get the algorithm, 
The secretary he sort of sweet-talked into letting him into the office calls security. And now we get a fight and a chase scene accompanied by the real Don't Stop Believing, you know, the one by Journey. It seems that finger weapons are Jensen's thing. And ironically, he tells them that he was a secret government experiment. Only ironic because that is what he does later become in a different film. He mentions that these experiments turned him into a dangerous telekinetic, which again harks back to another of his films, Push, which came out in 2009. The guys all have their ideas for what they will do with the $400 million that they find on the drive once it's been decrypted, including a jet, a canary yellow stretch hummer, yes, Jensen, really good idea, won't stand out at all, and exchanging it to Max for their lives. Things between Clay and Aisha are getting more complicated, and while they're continuing their odd and destructive relationship, Jensen is looking up his niece's soccer team, and Pooch is watching his wife, who was already pregnant when he was killed. She's in the last few weeks of her pregnancy, and he wants nothing more than to be with her, understandably. Roke tells him to go home, and as they're talking, Jensen discovers that Aisha is the daughter of Fadil, the drug dealer that Clay shot right at the beginning of the film. Jensen and the others go to warn Clay, and Aisha aims a gun right at Jensen's dick and it seems that he would rather she aimed the gun at his head. Aisha then shoots Jensen in the shoulder and makes her escape. I have to say, at this point, we're finding out a little bit more about Max, and he is one odd character. He seems to suffer from, I think, some sort of split personality disorder. He's unable to focus on one thing at a time. He is incredibly unstable, and this makes him really dangerous. Pooch is worried, now they've discovered that Aisha actually wants Clay dead. She knows way too much about them, and not only does she know about them, but she knows about their families, and he needs to ensure that his wife is safe. Clay and Roke say that they are happy to go in and finish the whole thing alone, but the others say that they're all in this together. At this point, I did wonder if I should start queuing up High School Musical. The plan seems to be going quite smoothly, but then, you know, best laid plans of mice and men and all that. They all get into their perfect spots to take down Max and Wade. They're all caught. And this is the point where Roke reveals his true colours. He was on the other side with Max and Wade after things went wrong after their previous mission. Idris Elba's accent also fails at this point when he reveals he's an arse. His accent sounds more EastEnders than USA. So I'm not sure if he was, ever, he was actually meant to be American in the first place. The losers have been set up by Wade and Max and Roke to look as though they've just stolen $1 billion from the CIA cash stash. Which isn't great. At the LA port, having been caught, the losers are being loaded into separate transports so that they can be executed. The potential killers are goading Cougar. One has just shot Pooch in the knees and he's telling Cougar that he wants his hat. Cougar then sees something which makes him smile. Their rescuer has arrived and she is holding a missile launcher. It seems that Max's motivation for getting weapons and killing all these people is because he wants to start a war. He sees these sonic nukes, or snooks as they are referred to through the film, as the way to do it. While one of the Indian scientists, who I have no doubt will end up dead, is setting things up to blow. Roke is filling a plane with money and Wade is trying to kill the losers before they can screw up the plans. 
There are a lot of explosions, a lot of gunfire, and Clay has his eyes on Max, whose initial backup plan has gone to the dogs. He had intended to be out of there before the bomb went off, on a plane with all his money. Unfortunately, Roke has run off with the money. But he will get his comeuppance, be sure. Max manages to escape, but they know what he looks like now, and they know who they're after. On a rainy night, the group is on a mission, but it's not like any mission they've ever done before. They're on a schedule and time is counting down. Pooch is determined, no matter what, he is not going to miss the birth of his child, even though his wife is less than impressed when he shows up, as he's been dead for months. The film ends on a bit of a high. Jensen finally gets to see his niece playing soccer. His niece gets kicked, and Jensen decides that he is going to interfere, far from staying undercover. He gets in the ref's face, and the others have to drag him away before he really makes a scene. This film, I feel, could have led to a sequel quite easily. However, with such a disappointing box office income, there was no way it could be justified. So we are left to wonder whether Max is caught and whether Aisha lives up to her promise of paying Clay back for killing her father. In my view, this was a huge departure for Evans, and though there are other actors here, let's be honest, this isn't called the Idris Elba, Zoe Saldana or Jeffrey Dean Morgan season. This is all about Chris Evans because that's my brain. He's the comic relief, which is something he hasn't really played in other films. Sure, he's been in a few outright comedies, such as Not Another Teen Movie, but in this, he was the one who rarely took anything seriously. He has a tendency towards playing the one who makes the jokes, who plays with the action figures, who gives out the nicknames, and when it comes to costume, Jensen is definitely not shying away from the bright colours and the in-your-face t-shirts. This is the last role Evans played before his number came up and he became Steve Rogers. So it's a bit disappointing that it wasn't more of a success. However, I personally think that if it had been a bigger box office hit, then the role of Steve Rogers would have found its way to one of the other actors who were up for the role. And then what a great interpretation we'd have missed out on. Well, I think so anyway. This is yet another of my go-to films. To be honest, it's one I've had in my DVD collection for a good few years. And actually, I think I purchased it before I saw Captain America. If you like anything that has loads of explosions, the whole good against evil, gunfights, snappy comebacks, then this is a film to go to. The only thing I would say is that the treachery was something telegraphed pretty early on in the film and the bad guy was a tad cliched unstable wanting to do this for the good of the planet etc i would also say read a few of the comic books it was a limited run of just 32 comics over two and a half years published by vertigo a dc imprint it was written and illustrated by two british creators andy diggle and jock who have since gone on to work on comics such as daredevil wolverine and venom If you are interested in seeing the film, then it is currently available on Amazon Prime in the UK and occasionally appears on Netflix and Amazon in the US and elsewhere, though right now I don't believe it's on either of them. As I mentioned earlier, instead of talking about what's coming to streaming services near me this week, in other words, anything in the UK, I'm going to be taking a look at the things that I plan on filling my weekend with. I guess this week will be a tad predictable if you know me at all. But first on that list is the premiere episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which arrives on Disney Plus globally on Friday the 19th. 
Unfortunately, I won't have time to watch it before I start work, as it won't surface until 8am GMT. But that is my evening all sorted out. I'll also be delving into episode 3 of Dollface, which is another thing that has found a home on Disney+, Plus after airing on Hulu in the US. I honestly am not sure about films that I'm going to find on my playlist this week. I tend to add them over the week and then watch them one after the other on Saturday or Sunday. But I do know that I will get ever closer to the final episodes of Castle. I have been watching that pretty much every single day since the 23rd of February when it arrived. And though I have seen it before, there are a lot of things that I had forgotten. Such as guest episodes starring Chadwick Boseman, for example. Look out for an episode all about the mystery writer and the New York cop at some point in the future, because it is a series that I really honestly loved. So that's it from me about TV and film. Do you have any shows or films on your playlist that you want to share? I'd love to hear. Let me know in the comments or over on social media, and I promise I will respond because I respond to as much as I can. Searching for a new podcast and love learning more about people, then head over to the Struggling Artist podcast hosted by Trev Allen. Hey everybody, my name is Trev Allen and I am the host of the Struggling Artist podcast. The best way to describe the Struggling Artist podcast uh, is just a conversation. My guests are from all walk of life, uh, creators and non-creators, it doesn't matter, business owners, you know, or just regular workers, and we just sit down and we just chop it up, talk about life. Uh, struggles, and things that interest us. The podcast is available on all podcast platforms. So whatever one you're comfortable using, we should be there. And if we're not, let us know. Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter, at PodcastTSA, uh, or email if you want to be a guest on the show, the Struggling Artist Podcast at gmail.com. I mean, the podcast is just a lot of fun, and I couldn't do it without these amazing guests that I have on uh, that are so passionate about whatever it is that they're talking about. And so I want to thank them for that. I want to thank the listeners because if I didn't have you guys, then, you know, podcasts would be nothing. So again, check us out. The Struggling Artist Podcast. We drop on Fridays. We'll talk to you later. I'll post a link to Trev's podcast in the episode notes and you can head over there after you've finished listening to this week's episode of mine. I have to admit that I'm not sure what to say about the book that I read for this week. It was sort of recommended, but admittedly my curiosity about it got the better of me, so I ended up downloading it for my Kindle. What's the book, you may well ask? Well, it's called Asking for Trouble by a British chiclet author, Elizabeth Young. Like many of the books I've picked up to read this year, this is the first one I've read by Young. However, unlike the others, this will most definitely be the last one I read by her. According to the blurb, it's this. Unmarried 30-year-old Sophie Metcalf told a little white lie to soothe her nagging mother. The white lie's name was Dominic, the ideal boyfriend, charming, successful, the kind of prospective son-in-law that would make any mother proud. But now that Sophie's thin and beautiful sister, Belinda, is getting married, Dominic is going to have to make an appearance in the flesh. Which should be a pretty neat trick, since the genuine article vanished from Sophie's life after a single, singularly unmemorable evening. So she resorts to a very drastic measure, aka Josh Carmichael, the escort she hires at the very last minute, sight unseen. But the trouble with white lies is that they tend to multiply. The trouble with rugged, too sexy and independent Josh is, well, that Sophie's actually beginning to like him, 
even if they make it through the wedding day from hell together with its new intrigues, old flames, and all too familiar faces, there's the night that follows, and of course the morning after, and that could end up being the biggest trouble of all. A hip, witty, and freshly fantastic delight, Asking for Trouble is the most hilarious and knowing novel to make the scene since Bridget Jones first set pen to paper to record her most intimate innermost thoughts. The book was initially released in September 2001 and it is the tale that inspired the 2005 film The Wedding Date. Stay tuned for April when this film is one I will be talking about with a special guest. But I just don't see it. The names aren't the same, the situation isn't the same, the characters are unrelatable, unlikable and just genuinely awful. In the film, you really start to feel for Kat, played by Deborah Messing, yet her character is based on Sophie, the female protagonist, who doesn't just tell one little white lie to protect herself from hurt. There is no ex-fiancé having an affair, her younger sister is actually quite likeable, and the majority of the action in this book does not happen over a single weekend organised for a self-indulgent younger sister's wedding. I really struggled to like anything about the book at all. But if I were forced to find one thing that made it readable, it would be Josh. Josh is sort of innocent of all wrongdoing in this, but he's tarred with the same brush as the other characters, purely because there were so many people to find fault with. I really enjoyed The Wedding Date as a film, and if you do too, my advice is to ignore the fact that a book is mentioned anywhere in the promo on the film, or on the Wikipedia or IMDb pages. My biggest issue, however, had to lie with Sophie. This whole book is through her eyes, which is fair enough, it's chiclet and she is the main character. However, she tells lie after lie, until they snowball into a story that ends up hurting people. She is so awful to her mother, interfering or not. Okay, so the mother is a bit domineering, but she just wants her children to be happy, and the conversation she has with her actually causes her mum to doubt everything and believe that she could be at fault when things don't work out for Belinda and her new husband after they are married. This all starts with one minor lie, though Sophie bases this on someone who never showed any interest in her because she doesn't want to go to a wedding on her own. Seriously, show some courage, woman. It's not all about being in a relationship. I'm saying this as someone who's been single for years, literally decades. And then it all becomes so much bigger because she can't be honest with her family or with herself. There's also a lot of unnecessary hatred towards other women. And why did every single woman in this book get dumped by a cheating boyfriend? It's as though Elizabeth Young has some kind of dislike for men. Or at least she did when she wrote the book. We have every single cliche imaginable in this book. The lead is constantly obsessing over her weight and is so focused on it that food, clothes and the way men perceive her is at the centre of almost every single one of her thoughts. Any woman who is slim or slender is viewed as a threat. I have to be honest, I came away from this book struggling to find anything nice to say about it at all, as you can probably tell. Normally, I can say, if you like some aspect, pick up this book. On this occasion, I am saying, run away. I now need to cleanse my palate with something else because I am so disappointed. All that said, it was a very quick read, or rather it would have been had I not had to keep on putting it down to prevent myself from flinging it across the room. See, that's where there is an advantage when it's a bad paperback. You can fling it without causing any damage. 
I value my Kindle and the 93 unread books on it way too much to throw it anywhere. So this will just be removed from my downloads and placed in the archive where it will remain. I very rarely mark a book as never again on Goodreads, but this one was added to make the list eight in total, alongside things like The Mister by E.L. James and Age Sex Location by Melissa Pimentel. If you're looking for a really good chick lit or contemporary romance, then I have a list a mile long I can recommend. But this one, I am really sorry to say, will never make the cut. I plan on trying to find something much more enjoyable to read for next week. Okay, so we've talked all about that. Now let's get on with the wonder that is mental health. I was thinking long and hard about what I could talk about this week and I realised that one of the things I mention very, very briefly quite often is my problems with food. I have a very, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, I've got a very destructive and abusive history when it comes to eating and it has proved, unfortunately, in the UK at least, a barrier to getting proper mental health help. For some reason, if you have a history of eating disorders, whether that's anorexia, bulimia or anything else, mental health services almost slam the door shut on you. They think that all of your mental health issues are to do with food. And if you have any other mental health issues, when you go to talk about food, they also close the door on you. I found this to be really damaging. Unfortunately, I have had a very poor history with food since I was a child. I went through puberty just after my father passed away when I was 11. And being incredibly short, yeah, I'm four foot 11, any weight gain looks like a lot. It's an unfortunate side effect of being a short person. I'm not super short, but I am short enough. My mum has had an obsession with my weight since I went through puberty. And we're talking, she put me on every single diet you can think of including a few of the really bad fatty diets like cabbage soup and there was a British Heart Foundation diet that went through several incarnations back in the I'd say mid 80s which was later proved to be a total scam it included things like have a teaspoon of peanut butter every single day and at that point I hated peanut butter with a passion to be honest now I only like it in smoothies or in yogurt Anyway, my mum put me on every single diet known to man. So it's unsurprising that somewhere in my teens, I developed a massive distrust of food. Anytime I ate something, I would feel guilty and I would immediately go and throw it up. I used to be a singer. My voice is now damaged to the point where I quite often, if I cough too hard, my throat will bleed. Not a great position to be in, I have to say. When I was 16 years old, my mum finally gave up on putting me on diets and took me to a so-called diet specialist in the next town over. This so-called diet specialist prescribed steroids. Not, (laughs) I'm not talking the ones that make you build muscle. I'm talking about the ones that suppress appetite that they've since discovered can cause all manner of heart disorders and everything else. So fantastic. Thanks for that. I, after two years of taking them, and they weren't cheap, apparently, as my mum constantly was telling me, I got down to the point where I was under six and a half stone, 
which is a stone less than the lowest Weight Watchers recommend somebody of my height and build weighs. And I looked awful. There is just one photo of me in that year. It was taken on my 18th birthday and I look ill. There is nothing to me. My wrists are really, really tiny. I look all bony. I'm basically a stick with boobs because no matter what happens, they don't go. I really wish they did. They're the one thing that I really hate. After that, though, when I moved abroad for a year, I had no longer got access to this medication, which is probably not a bad thing. And I put all the weight on plus some. When I came back, my mum then started on the you're fat, you're fat, you're fat thing. And I started to self-harm because if my mum couldn't look at me and say, I love you no matter what you are, did I have a right to anything? And I was so self-conscious all the time. Why would anybody love me? Why would anybody like me? It sent me down the path of destructive relationships with men, destructive relationships with my friends and family. And I ended up pushing so many people away because why would anybody like me if my mum was ashamed of what I looked like? It is thanks to that that I now have a consistent problem with my weight. I struggle to lose it. I'm in my mid to late 40s, which is the point where women do struggle even harder to lose weight. And I am so self-conscious all the time. My mum still talks about my weight. In fact, not that long before I turned 40, I went through a phase and I lost 12 stone. That's how big I was. And I lost that by becoming addicted to exercise. I would exercise three times a day, every single day, Monday through Sunday. There was never a break. I ended up damaging my rotator cuff, which still causes me issues today because can't get anywhere on a waiting list. And I have such poor self-image issues, which is why when I started thinking about, oh, I want to do book reviews, I initially thought, oh, I'll do this on YouTube. And then I realised that that would mean showing people what I look like. And I just don't feel confident enough to do so. Which is really sad. I don't have the confidence in who I am physically to let people see who I am. And maybe that has some connection to why I've been single for so long. But now I've reached that stage where it's like, don't really want to be with anybody anyway. I like having my own bathroom. The problem is I am diabetic. And that means I should eat regularly. Unfortunately, I have developed such poor eating habits that I'll quite often go an entire day or two surviving on coffee and nothing else. I'm not sure if I can put all the blame at my mum's doorstep. In fact, I don't want to. But a lot of the criticism and recrimination that I received because I was gaining weight in my teens which is normal, apparently. I look at photos of myself now when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, when my mum was constantly bombarding me with, you're not as skinny as your sister. You're not as skinny as this. It's like my sister's five inches taller than me and an athlete. She was a swimmer and a runner. Never going to happen with me. Constantly being compared to people who were taller, who were thinner, who were more athletic, where I was more bookish, never helped. 
It didn't help with my self-image then. It still doesn't help now. My sister can still lose weight at the drop of a hat. She loves running. She's also flat-chested. I've never been a massive fan of exercise. I love swimming. But the last year, that hasn't been possible. Anyway, back to the whole I am diabetic thing. It does mean that I should eat regularly. But unhealthy habits picked up when I was a child have meant that I will sometimes go two days without eating anything and surviving on caffeine, which means that my sugar levels suffer severely and I end up becoming rather sick. My immune system is shockingly crap and my self-image is even worse. Now, I'm not telling anybody this to feel sorry for me because it is a long time ago. However, I do believe that a lot of our past does shape who we are in the present and it has taken me more than 20 years to accept that the only person who can improve my self-image is me. I need to stop relying on the approval, the acceptance, the love of other people to get me what I need to be, to get me where I need to be. So when you feel like people are disproving or they say something that hurts you, that's their problem. And I know it's really hard to accept. It's taken me years and sometimes I still sit there thinking, why didn't they pick me? Why don't they care about me the same way as they care about Joe Bloggs down the road? I have, though, started to strengthen my own self-image It's one of the reasons that I do this podcast is because it's something that I can do and I feel confident in. Occasionally I'll sit there and I'll go, oh my God, is that really my voice? That sounds awful, especially when I'm editing. But I know I'm not alone there. Everybody listens to their voice and goes, is that really what I sound like to other people? So what this boils down to is you are your own inner voice. You are the person you should listen to. You are the one who cares for you the most and that should be the focus you should be the person you think about first in the morning sounds really selfish but nobody else is going to do the same thing when you wake up in the morning if you're feeling rubbish I often do I wake up almost every morning in fact this morning I woke up at three o'clock and all I could think was I feel really ill and then I discovered I'd forgotten to take all my meds yesterday and that explained everything I woke up and the first thing I said was today is going to be a me day. It's going to be a day when I look after myself, even if I'm at work. It's going to be a day when I take my time over making my coffee. I have a longer shower, wash my hair properly, sit and dry my hair, maybe paint my nails, do something nice for me that nobody else is going to do. It's kind of like that. Take a step back and think about things for yourself. And that is what the lesson for today for me and maybe for you is going to be self-care. Do something for you. Sod everybody else for five minutes and think about yourself, whether that is sitting in the bathroom, having a soak in the bath, standing under the shower as you're getting dressed, even if you're just taking a few moments while you're putting your deodorant on. Take that time for you. So that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I really want to take this opportunity to thank every single person who has listened to any of my episodes or more if you like what you've heard. Thanks to you, I have managed to reach an incredible 2,000 listens and this week I celebrated six months on the podcast. 
here's looking forward to the next six. I release a new episode every week. So if you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family or Joe Blogs down the road and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely have not had enough today. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.